0: What's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilsack, and this is the premiere episode of Untenured Tracks. We had launched this podcast a couple of weeks ago under the name Oh the Humanities, and then while we were in the process of getting it up on Spotify and iTunes. Realized that there was already an active podcast with the same name, so immediately changed the title of this to Untenured Tracks. In our premiere episode, we talk with Shauna Lassure from the University of Connecticut. Shauna is a training and outreach program manager and an English instructor. Shauna talks to us about her path through academia as well as her research and scholarship. She has spent a lot of time in Los Angeles working with a cambodian film festival it's a really amazing story the work is incredible so i hope you enjoy the show
1: So I am one of the people who was born at a, an unfortunate time um, in the United States, so that I graduated college right at the recession, and then I graduated with my master's right when it turned down again, um, so 28, uh, 2010, um, and, and so I have very much at the forefront of my mind been trying to make sure that I was as marketable as humanly possible the whole time I was going through my graduate career. Like, please let this get me a job. (laughs) Uh, So I I ended up uh, partially because of just the logistical desperation of of being a person who was born at the time I was. Um, But then also because I'm kind of uh, eclectic in my academic interests, I I ended up getting a, a handful of different degrees and experiences that I've kind of been able to to hodgepodge together in a way that I I think is really fun for me intellectually and potentially. Uh, So I came to UConn thinking I I was going to get uh, a Ph.D. in English, and uh, after going through that that master's program, I I was actually really disappointed um, about career prospects and then also I I loved teaching and my primary thing I I really wanted to do was think about how my my teaching could touch the world uh, and actually make it um, something meaningful Um, and and so I really started thinking about ways that that I could be more active. Um, The the scholarly just sitting in a room thinking about literature wasn't as fun for me. Um, I loved that part but I needed it to be a piece, not the main thing I was doing. Um, so I ended up getting a graduate certificate in human rights as part of that and connecting with a bunch of people um, in different spaces across the campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually what started my, my really weird um, administrative career. Um, I, I started working with folks who uh, work in a place called Community Outreach. It's our volunteer center. Um, And I did their external media for Mm -hmm. public relations for them, and I was one of the first people to get us this big national award uh, for the the work that was already being done. It was just getting it recognized. Uh, So I started simultaneously being a a graduate student um, and someone who was working uh, on administrative processes. Um, When I I made a shift, um, I left my my first master's program and went into international relations, um, completely different field. Um, and then got a women's studies graduate certificate that whole time. Um, I actually wasn't, uh, like a regular GA. Um, I've never done what people in my field do. Um, so I'm, I'm a political scientist and I guess that we go and like grade papers for other political scientists who are higher up than we are. Um, that's never been a thing that I've done. Um, from what I understand, it's a very common experience that, that may be torturous, um, but I, I've never done that. Um, in English, you, you cut, step in, and before I'd even taken a graduate class, you have your whole own... Uh, class of like 25 people who are staring at you and think you're their professor. Um, and, and you're teaching writing. It's your own class that you designed. Um, so I did that. Um, but then I got an administrative appointment uh, starting working with the Connecticut writing project. Mm-hmm. And so they work with K through 12 educators and, and try to get, all of our our writing curriculum aligned in a way that educators talk with each other so students don't feel like I've gotten to this next step and nothing ever helped me, or I I don't see the the sequence between my education in a way that um, I feel like I can be successful as I I move along my my education. Um, So with that, I I showed up in political science, and I I never did anything that normal political science grad students do. Um, I ended up getting a full-time job. Um, I was a, a curriculum manager, um, on, on campus, um, for first year programs and learning communities. So I, I was the assistant director, uh, in charge of all the first year experience classes. And, and so I, I, worked, um, supervising instructors when a, a lot of people who were my peers were like grading papers for EPU, e, like other people. Um, so I, I think it was a lot more uh, beneficial for my career development <laughs> <laughs> than, than what I think uh, my peers were experiencing. Um, So it was wonderful, but it it got to be quite challenging because at that point I I was working on a Ph.D. I had background in four different academic fields that I was trying to put together and and try to make sense. Um, And then I was also interested in education, which wasn't one of my fields, but it was my job, and it was part of what I wanted to put in my research. So I got Mm a fifth field that I'm just chucking in there and learning the research for funsies uh, in my free time. Yeah, all the free
2: time i
1: Um, And working a full-time job, um, and so researching, working the full-time job, and I I was also teaching, uh, Mm -hmm. so I'm also an adjunct um, at the university, um, to keep that up, because that's where my passion came from in the Mm -hmm. first place. So, yeah, I ended up um, doing that for a while, um, but uh, it was a a place that I I felt like I couldn't continue growing myself. Um, I obviously like to learn new things. If nothing else, I think you've gotten that from me.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's an understatement. I feel like.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I thought, hey, what the heck? Why don't I work in the sciences? Why not? Um, <laughs> of
0: course, because why wouldn't you?
1: <laughs> um, so uh, our office of the vice president for research um, needed someone who could work with faculty and, and who could work with staff all across campus. Um, but also who happened to be an education and technology expert. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: so it's kind of a weirdo position that I, I think it would have been really hard for them to hire for. They they actually re-upped it twice trying to uh-huh. get somebody. Um, and then one of my <laughs> colleagues actually reached out to me personally and said, hey, hey, will you apply for this job? <laughs> um,
0: we need this very specific person, of which there are probably five in the country. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so I came in and I, I created a, a program for them, and it's been really cool. Um, I, I've actually been working with educational technology mostly now yeah. um, and, and trying to support STEM research for undergraduates and for faculty. Um, I work with some really nice people that, I, as a social scientist, I didn't know existed in the university. Um, and I feel kind of bad that yeah. I went for, for, like, 10 years. It's like, university like, what do you mean? Existed.
0: Like, what kind of people?
1: Uh, so they're, they're kind of like... The the step between OSHA coming down on the university and all of our faculty. Okay. Uh, they are the, the people who help interpret all the federal and state laws and, and make sure faculty don't have to figure out how to interpret it um, for their their research and their teaching. Yeah. And just tell them what to do and give them the training they need. Okay. Um, and make sure they don't blow up their labs, <laughs> things like that.
0: <laughs> Temper down the mad and the mad scientist stuff a little bit.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, just really nice down-to-earth folks who, um, I mean, if they didn't exist, the university couldn't keep going, and I had yeah. no idea how important they were, um, or even that they were on campus, huh. uh, but they play a role that, you know, if, if something happened... Um, that you know was on their end it would be a a very big issue it'd be a safety issue it'd be something that would end up in in the newspaper or Uh we'd end up being shut down have you know labs have the government come see us or something (laughs) a really big deal Um, but i didn't know they were a thing okay Um, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah i get to work with these delightful people now um and, and i'm helping uh Everyone on campus kind of communicate better across lines of difference, um, because I've now worked in student affairs and academic affairs. Uh, I've studied in four different departments. I've taught in five different departments. Um, I've worked in research affairs, and now they they transferred our reporting line to work for the chief of police. So I report to the chief of police. Um, I think I know more about the workings uh, of a modern university in the United States than I ever could have possibly hoped for.
0: Why do you report to the chief of police?
1: Because.
0: (laughs) That came out of, like, complete left field.
1: The name says safety. Um He's a that should very be on your business card person who wants to make sure he supports everyone who has anything to do with safety. I actually really love this guy. My current reporting line is the most supportive reporting line <laughs> I've ever had. Um, but the thing is most of their work is through as for researchers. I uh-huh. spent a lot of time on the academic affairs t- side, trying to get faculty to figure out things for their students. Uh-huh. Uh, but the people who end up paying all the rent for us are, are really the, the safety people who just decided they were going to take us under their wing. Um, Huh. I don't know. Uh, it's changed. I looked at this big book. My boss has a yeah. binder of all the different times this job, this uh, office has reported to different people on campus. Uh-huh. Um, if I were president of a university, I, I would have my boss actually report directly to the president uh, because yeah. of, of how important this role is. I, I, I never knew they existed, but I, I would if i were making one i'd make a report
0: directly well given your tra- your career trajectory let's think about this so you're probably like 10 years away from being like a provost right <laughs> just like completely accidentally like i showed up one day and suddenly <laughs> i'm provost and then from there obviously you you catapult yourself to a presidency and then you could, <laughs> you, could you know do this. just to
1: see what happens i walk up <laughs>
0: Just start parking in the provost spot and see what happens.
1: <laughs> That'd be cool. The
0: provost is nice. Yeah, and you know the chief of police, so, like, I feel like that gives you free reign to, I mean, that's some... That's it really some... is great. All my friends are the police officers
1: now. <laughs> that's not something I expected to do in my career when I started thinking I was going to be an English professor. <laughs> yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. No, I know all about those those left turns um, that we make. So what kind of stuff are you working on now?
1: Well, one of the, the really cool things um, that doesn't come from my professional work it is really because of my professional work that I can do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really love my dissertation. It's taken me way longer than normal people should spend on a dissertation. Um, but I have the luxury to do that because I have a mm-hmm. full-time real adult personal job yeah. <laughs> that pays me money and has insurance <laughs> and rates, um, which I know is a luxury that a lot of PhDs don't get to experience.
0: Oh, I know. I think there might be grad students listening to this right now who are, like, really jealous that you have benefits. Yeah, I
1: have benefits <laughs> and an adult paycheck and everything. Like, but, like
0: wow, oh. it's possible. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so I've gotten to do exactly what I want to do for my research, which mm-hmm. is a slight side benefit that I wouldn't have thought of. Um, I do um, kind of avant-garde research. Uh, it's through political science right now, through international relations, but... I folded in all my other fields. I study mm-hmm. the arts and politics. Um, I'm working with a, a group called the Cambodia Town Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And they're out in Long Beach. Uh, it's the largest refugee community um, of Cambodians who, who fled the genocide. Mm-hmm. And so I work with these people. They're brilliant artists, really um, just fun program managers that they've been putting together this great film festival for mm-hmm. that is the seventh year now. Um, and my dissertation is going to be looking at the first five years. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the fifth year, um, one of the directors, she had her second baby and had to step back a little bit. Um, so it really was an end of an era. Um, yeah. So I have this whole period of time where I can talk about How it evolved, where it started, and how they um, planned their their activism, Mm -hmm. what kind of films they thought were valuable, what kind of art was coming out of Cambodian-American and Mm -hmm. Cambodian genocide histories, and put that uh, on parallel with what was happening or not happening as far as justice um, internationally yeah. um, because we, we didn't see uh, a lot happen for the Cambodian and Cambodian American people um, coming out of truth commissions for most of their lives. There's a mm-hmm. whole bunch of science silence. And when it finally started to happen, it was about the time of the Cambodia town film festival and people had gone on with their lives uh, and not known anything grown up, not knowing their family's history. Yeah. So then this film festival was filling a gap when they weren't seeing it coming from their international justice. And, Even with what the proceedings have come through, um, it basically ended this year. Most of the folks who remain perpetrators are dead or dying um, and haven't really suffered any consequences. And only the the highest level of perpetrators really had any sort of consequences for them. Um, Mm -hmm. Lots of other people are just going about their lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I get to parallel what we're trying to do with international justice and I would argue really failing
2: yeah.
1: um, and then what these people created for themselves mm-hmm. um, and artists were particularly targeted in the genocide. So developing the art and film is its own activism. Just yeah. having. Um, so I got to spend I about mean, seven years. I just go intermittently. I go hang out with these phenomenal artists and see and learn what they're doing. And my dissertation gets to me, me talking about that. I get to quote Angelina Jolie. She kind of came a couple years Um, so I get to do this piece that's really cool and something I'm really passionate about that nobody would have been like, yes, spend the next five years bouncing back and forth between LA and not doing things in the middle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When I just want to say that when you told me when we were messaging on Twitter and you told me what your work was, I, I, I like spazzed out a little bit. Like I was so excited because what you do sounds so cool and like right away it was like, okay, How can I be friends with her? (laughs) How can I? Basically, the
1: coolest research anyone's ever done. Oh, for sure. I see movies and hang out with artists. It's great.
0: (laughs) But also, I mean, like it's not just it's not just that you know it's the work that they're doing and the work that you're doing is so important to this community. And so, when you mentioned that um, there were conversations about like what sorts of art, artists, or films, or or what type of work to include in the film festival, like what do they decide on? Like, what does that look like?
1: So the number one thing for them really is having good art Yeah. because their art community was ravaged. Um, Mm -hmm. It was a particular goal uh, of the genocide to remove any history uh, of their artistic production. Mm -hmm. So they really want to show that there's something there. There, There's something that they can contribute to world culture. There's Uh something that that they can contribute to their own culture and history. Uh, So they have pieces about the genocide, but they have pieces uh, about create um, anything. There, there's yeah. romantic comedies, there's horror films, there's public service announcements. <laughs> <laughs> Literally.
0: <laughs> I, I know, I believe it. And it make, it totally makes sense.
1: And, and so just anything that they said, you know, this is actually a really well done piece of art by, uh-huh. by someone or about someone who's Cambodian, Cambodian-American, um, and we want the world to see it. Um, uh-huh. So their number one thing is just, is it good?
0: Yeah. Huh. Um, so... There must be pieces about, like, the genocide itself, I, I would assume.
1: Tons.
0: Um, so how do they handle that?
1: They are a really interesting community um, to think about how we teach film uh, mm-hmm. in that way. Because one thing that, that I thought of um, at first was you have all these people who may or may not have experienced this personally. Mm-hmm. Um in our education setting right now, we think about things like trigger warnings. How do you make sure you're not yeah. upsetting people who, who've gone through traumatic experiences? Their answer really is community. Um, mm. I, I think to them, if they were talking to me about my teaching, if I were paralleling you know, what I'm doing with what they're doing, um, they would say, if you have to do a trigger warning, you've already failed. Yeah. So. The reason I say that is because in that space, they they are surrounded by people who care about each other. Uh Um, They've spent time building that community. They have events before the films are shown, where you have dinner together. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you talk with one one another. Um, You share your ideas. Um, You bring your grandmom um, to to these events. Um, And if they want to say something, people have a conversation in the middle of that film with their family about what's happening in it, and it's totally culturally acceptable. Uh, it, it's just a, a big family. Um, so for them, uh, they do bring in people sometimes, um, for some of the really difficult films, uh, they've brought in groups who provide help to the community. So, uh, mental health, um, physical health, uh, medical, um, kind of support from people. Um, there was a, a group who came in and, uh, the way Kaylee, the, the co-director described it, um, was that it, it was like a, a therapy session. Yeah. Because that's what they do in the community. They talk to people who have gone through trauma and and help them uh, develop really good coping strategies for their lives that that are meaningful for them within their community. Mm -hmm. Um, They brought them in because uh, it was the the May Foundation. Uh, They brought them in because it was relevant to the film. um, Mm -hmm. And they do that. They have talkbacks, people who are part of the film, uh, who come in and talk about um, what happened. A lot of the people who produce the film are genocide survivors. People who are are starring in some of the films are genocide survivors or or their descendants. Um, So they did it just by being authentic and treating people with kindness. Um, They welcome everyone. Uh, It doesn't matter if you're Cambodian, Cambodian Cambodian-American. The photographer, he's African-American. Herman and I hang out. Um, I'm very white. Um, And they're they're super kind to me. They're just like, anyone, come in. You're welcome to the family. We'll feed you. Um, We'll we'll talk with you about things. We'll make it a a space where you're you're safe to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's really a phenomenal place to be.
0: That sounds so cool, I and mean, that sounds it's
1: brilliant. It, it's an amazing program they
0: have. Yeah. Um. So, where do you see your dissertation going? Like, I don't. I don't want to be like, "What's your hypothesis" or anything like that. But, <laughs> oh,
1: yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like, uh, like, what do you?
1: to defend this uh this semester
0: no 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 no, um, no, not, no 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 i don't mean to like trigger you about like i, 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 I can see the look on your <laughs> face like oh my god like, <laughs> no, no, like it's like it,
1: i'm hoping to defend this semester so i'm really i've got it together so you, it's <laughs> a good timing for asking um, if not you know i have my all my whole adult life that gets in the way of things so it may be yes. at the end of this year um but i have the, the piece together um i i really didn't think i was going to talk about education at all mm-hmm. um but i, I went in with the spirit that I wasn't going to um, go in with a, a real solid scientific method uh, and have a hypothesis and a null hypothesis. Yeah. I was going to go in um, ethnographically um, and okay. do participant observation and see what they taught me and actually mm-hmm. taught about, talk about what was important to them and yeah. what came out of their experience instead of trying to impose what I thought uh-huh. their experience was on my narrative of their project. Um, Very cool. and. So what I, I really ended up learning from them um, was a, a lot about what, what the film culture can bring. Mm-hmm. Um, they perceive this to be a, a renaissance of uh, Cambodian, Cambodian-American film, mm-hmm. uh, because they, they have a lot of great work coming out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm hoping to highlight some of these films and what they're doing as far as the memory work and how they're, they're framing different narratives. Um I'm really mm-hmm. excited about this festival because the diversity of narratives. Yeah. It's not telling the genocide from a, a single perspective mm-hmm. and it's not telling the Cambodian American experience or the Cambodian experience just through the lens of the genocide. Uh, You see things happening uh, parallel. They happen during the genocide. They happen to people who are survivors of the genocide, but they have lives that are not just defined Mm -hmm. by the genocide. And I think that's something that's really important for this generation of Cambodian Americans uh, based on what they've been telling me Mm -hmm. uh, that they are not only the history of the genocide. They have something to offer. Um, And and so I'm going to look at the way that this narrative um, has emerged out of their festival and, and kind of compare it to the the less compelling narrative that were coming out of um, the the tri- tribunal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I really want to take what I can learn from the way that they use their cultural production to the way we use their cultural production, because in, in international relations, and I'm assuming in, in, in a lot of other fields, we're really getting excited about throwing film into our classrooms or f- throwing film into things that we're talking about, um, about international relations, but just as a model of something that we already have in our head. You know, this is our theory of international relations. This mm-hmm. fits our theory nicely. Um, or, you know, this is a, a topic that we're talking about. I'm going to give you this one idea of these people. And now that's your single story of those human beings. And that's all you're going to think about those human beings. Yeah. Um, because a lot of our students don't even know Cambodia exists, for example. Um, I, I was teaching a, a genocide and narrative politics class, and I had this wonderful student who I, I love. He's a very smart young man. Um, but he admitted that he got to my class as a junior and, and didn't realize that Africa was not a country. Uh, yeah. So um, and he he was he had heard of Hotel Rwanda. He had thoughts about Hotel Rwanda even before yeah. coming to my class, but he didn't he didn't have he any didn't way I, way of putting that into the context of the world. Um, and, and so I want to learn from them to to create a better idea of. What is genocide film,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: particularly looking at the Cambodian case, because I'm not, you know, able to extrapolate across. But, you know, what do we have is what what can I define genocide film as? How can I expand what that looks like? Mm-hmm. I don't just mean a film like The Killing Fields. Um, what comes out of a genocide? and Why does that matter? Why are the different narratives important?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so like a an ontology of it, you know, what, what exists out there. Um, but then a pedagogy of it. Um, what do we do with this in a way that's actually respectful of the people who, whose cultures we're talking about, whose histories we're talking about, whose culture productions we're utilizing to teach about their world or about yeah. our world? Uh, because a lot of times we just throw film in and it's like, yeah, it's a fun thing. Yeah. Um, but to these people, it's something that's really important. It, it's something that they, they've invested their, their lives and their hearts in and it means something to them mm-hmm. uh, and the way that it's, received in the way that it's used means something to them. So how can we be a a little more conscious and a little little more effective as educators and as researchers when, when we think about their work by by listening to them first?
0: Yeah. And there's an issue I would imagine of like respecting people's humanity there too, right? Absolutely. Um, in, in criminology, I've I've become really critical of how the discipline handles race in general, race and ethnicity in general. And the last time that I, I was able to go to the crim conference and present um, with students, I, I said, "Okay, we're going to open up and just kind of like make people mad <laughs> and go in." And I was like, "So the way criminology does race is basically garbage." <laughs> and um, in both of the sessions that we were in, um, I saw like a mixed reaction. Right, uh, either people were like really stunned and said, "What do you mean we we control for it as a variable? How could we possibly?" And then other people saying like, "Oh, like this guy is like gets it." Um, and so. I, I think you're absolutely right, saying like we usually think of film in class as like it's an easy day, like, oh, like' just going to to camp out back here and rest my voice, but you know we're putting work out there that is really important to people, and I think yeah. with this stuff that you're talking about there there runs the risk of like maybe maybe not so much for people who are studying it or people putting it together, but I'm imagining like a classroom hearing about this and kind of almost. <sighs> Like, I hate to use the analogy, but it's almost like here's this this horrible thing that happened to these people let's go and, and look at them like they're a living museum exhibit or something yeah. like that right and yeah. that that is really like doesn't accomplish what what we're, what you're trying to do what what people are what they're trying to do either um so and so kind of along that line um I was wondering have there been any has there been any pushback from like within the community to this from people who might say like, you know, like you said, we're not just the genocide. We're defined by way more than the genocide. Um, has there been any pushback to from people saying, like, why are we still talking about this? Do you know what I mean?
1: I think there are um, people who, who come to the the festival who are, are a lot more excited about the films that aren't about the genocide. Yeah, um, I, I've definitely seen that. Um, there are folks who, who want to see great art um, mm-hmm. and are, are Tired of feeling defined, yeah. um, and I think some of those people—it's—it's um, it's an interesting experience for them because they simultaneously didn't know about it for a very long time,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and now are finding out about it, and it's put on them as if it's the only thing that should matter. Um, mm-hmm. So. Um, by that, I mean that the people who, who came to the United States um, as 1.5 generation is what they call themselves. Um, they were born overseas, mm-hmm. um, came as small children. Um, their, their families survived the genocide or small numbers of their families. Um, they get here. Um, those parents then have children. Um, so these people, um, the children at this point are my, my age. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in their late 30s or you know, thereabouts. Um, so that the children are full on adults, mm-hmm. um, but the world wasn 't talking about the genocide at that time, mm-hmm. and, and the survivors weren't talking about it. Um, the survivors had been through something terrible. they were trying to get their life together yeah. um, they didn't tell their children about this all the time, many of them didn't, um, and the children are only now really mm-hmm. coming to learn about it. There are people who who come to the the festival every year um, who are about our students age you know mm-hmm. eighteen twenty. Um, and it's the first time they, they've learned anything about it, and they're Cambodian-American. Uh, they're people who, who this is their family's history. Yeah. Um, and this is the first time they, they've heard anything about
0: it. So that's that's really interesting to me, because we live in a culture that is like hashtag never forget, right? Yeah. And so the fact that, that an entire generation of survivors would kind of consciously work towards, not like the erasure of their history, but, I mean, for all intents and purposes, just kind of... Forgetting about it or, or not wanting to talk about it—is there a reason why they made that that decision?
1: Well, in Cambodia, it's still not a thing people talk about so much. Uh-huh. Uh huh. In Cambodia, um, the one of the people who I work with—he's a, a brilliant artist. He's a, a rapper named Pratch. Um, He—he's been asked to leave at times, uh, really, because he um, raps about the the genocide. Um, he goes to schools and educates people. Uh huh. Um, and, and being outspoken it, it is not welcome um, so it, it's something that people are talking about more the, the films are coming yeah. out obviously there's the tribunal um but that's only happened in the last decade or so
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, this happened when you know these people were born when 30 years ago is in the mm-hmm. 70s and so i mean it's more than 30 years ago now right yeah um <laughs> yeah and so there wasn't anything you could really do if you were in cambodia and yeah. if you were here um I can't even imagine the experience of being a refugee who who came from a genocide, um, who comes to the United States and has to, to start from nothing. Um, a lot of the people who had these experiences, um, they were put into forced marriages. Mm Uh, so they were specifically paired with people who had as little in common with them as possible. Um, they had people who were um, really rural, specifically paired with people who came from urban experiences, um, who had different, um, ethnic backgrounds, Mm -hmm. uh, and so your your partner may have been murdered, and then you may have been told you had to marry this other person who you don't know, yeah. and that may have been the person you fled with, and that might uh-huh. be the person you're married to now, and your kids don't know that. Wow. Um, I mean, I, I cannot possibly fathom what it what kind of courage it took to to do what these people have done.
0: Yeah i I honestly don't even know what to say to that. Right? I mean, stories like that I think are really important, just in genocide scholarship in general. Because, I don't know, I I teach a violence course, and so I I cover genocide, um, not in great depth, um, but definitely rethinking, you know, based on this conversation, like, how could I, how could I do it better than than just going through, like, different types of genocide and different reasons why people participate, and then we watch The Pianist. (laughs) Yeah. And.
1: (laughs) See, I mean, we do it. We all do it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um. And so the, the forced marriage thing and I'm, I'm completely ignorant in many ways and so I will um, say so here was it was the forced marriage thing something that was coming from the from families or was that a government
1: oh thing? that was the Khmer Rouge um, so okay. the the vision of the Khmer Rouge um, was year zero um, yeah. they wanted to set back to prior to any um, Western intervention mm-hmm. um, they really uh, romanticized the idea of rural living, um, and um, the, the farm kind of hardiness, um, mm-hmm. they forcibly marched people from the cities to go um, live in, and toil in the farms, mm-hmm. uh, and they wanted to flatten out people's experience. They had to wear the same clothes, they had to be the same in, in every way they, they could possibly force them to be. Um, and, and one way was to make you forget you we were or, mm-hmm. or what your connections were. Um, you're all one family. You, you yeah. didn't have your own family members. You, you have, you all part of the Khmer Rouge. Mm-hmm. Um, you didn't have personal connections. You didn't have personal belongings. Mm-hmm. You were part of the, this one group. Um, and, and so a lot of the, the people who ended up surviving, ended up surviving under a very, very strange conditions, um, for, for what, um, what you might consider, um, survival. Um, one of the people who I, there's a film about, uh, are you familiar with the killing fields? I'm not. Um, uh, the killing fields is like the big film, Hollywood film that was created about, uh, the Khmer Rouge.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, one of the actors, uh, his name is Hangmore. He actually survived the, mm-hmm. the killing Fields, And then he came in and acted in this film, um, which again, I, I can't imagine the, the trauma the, wow. of going through that process. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, he was a doctor and Mm -hmm. he had to pretend to not have had that education because having education was a a mark on you. You're going to be killed if you had education. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, he pretended to have been a tech and said the doctor ran out while he was doing a surgery Uh, so he could pretend not to be a doctor. Yeah. Uh, his wife, um, she died in in labor. Mm -hmm. Um, he was a gynecologist. Mm -hmm. He could have saved her. But he couldn't, because if he did, then they both would have been killed. Yeah. Um, So just really, really horrifying things that you you aren't the same person you were because you're not allowed to be that person. That person is is not a person who's allowed in this society.
0: Yeah. That's unbelievable. That's amazing. That... Like is like a film festival. Like this even exists, and then, right? Like the festival itself is almost like a celebr, like yeah, a victory. They couldn't
1: have had this. Yeah, this is itself? this is illegal. The festival is illegal, so yeah. having it is empowering.
0: Yeah, that's so cool. I mean, it has me thinking about ways that. Because one of the things that I've been trying to think about is ways to incorporate art into my classes somehow beyond like we've been joking about just like the the easy day with a movie. Um, yeah. And so this upcoming semester, I've got my students um, in one class that are going to make a zine as an assignment. And in awesome. um, th- another class, they're going to come up with some way to memorialize victims of some tragic event. Um, and so just try, try to get that that going. And so I, I'm thinking like um, other ways to use art like this uh, for for some group that's been kind of disenfranchised um as a way to do that empowerment work have you come across anything like that like, like that so as you tell people about the work that you're doing have you been able to like build a, a network of other film festivals and stuff like that or are we oh, still absolutely.
1: there's brilliant work all over the world um, the, it, i'm really excited i have a whole career of just just talking about art and politics there's far too much yeah um so i, I put together a. Uh, A conference, workshop kind of conference in Australia last summer um, with some colleagues. Uh, A couple from, uh, one from Australia, one studying in Australia, who's from the UK and Italy, um, and then one from South Africa. Um, And we had people come from all over the world. Um, Some of them were scholars, but some of them were artists. Mm -hmm. And um, they shared the work that they were doing. Um, Some for themselves, some Mm -hmm. as therapy to kind of understand the the world around them, um, and and then some as things that they thought were actually doing politics in the world. Um, And that's what really intrigues me is the the art that is really doing work for people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and if if you're a survivor, the the therapy is doing work for you as well. I I can't at all minimize that. Uh, For sure. but yeah we, we met uh, painters um' it's people who are doing uh, art based on uh, experiences of war um, and then people who are curating art with the artists um, There was a really interesting piece um they're doing a nine eleven art installation in Australia um because Australians felt connected to nine eleven and that was really interesting seeing the the way that internationally people connected with major historical events that weren't on their soil um and so that was intriguing. Um,
0: That's so interesting. Like, yeah, yeah.
1: And I, I, I can't speak to that curator's work yeah. as well because I, but I mean, she's doing this because to the folks in Australia, it meant something to them, and so they're working with artists all over the world. They had some U.S. artists, but some yeah. other folks. Um, huh. There's a a man who came, and he was he was really brave. I really respect the, this man. Um, he is a medical professional. Mm-hmm. He's a, a doctor. Um, and he works in communities um, as uh, like assistance, medical assistance, when it's like in desperate need.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so,
1: like a Doctors Without Borders kind of thing. He does yeah. like, those types of things. Okay. Uh, and he started drawing on, um, you know, those little tongue depressors that mm-hmm. they use. Yep. Uh, he did drawings on tongue depressors that he shared at the conference. Um, and his, his work he, he was trying to share um, because mm-hmm. he wanted to hear from people who knew more about art and knew knew more about the artistic community because he was just doing this for himself. And then he realized he had this whole collection of things that he's like, this is how I I understand war. This is how I understand violence and uh, pain. Uh, um, It's on medical devices. I'm just drawing on these things and in these space when I can't handle the pain that I'm
0: feeling
1: around me um it, there's so much brilliant stuff happening that's in
0: incredible that's wow
1: and, and he was just so awesome he came he's like i don't know anything about this here's my art <laughs> tell me about my art he's just the kindest
0: man well, yeah like he he kind of like hacked the system i guess like i want to yeah. talk about this but i need art so <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah he didn't have anything he just started drawing like, i just need to do this for myself because i'm experiencing this
0: yeah that's crazy i think you've given i mean you've definitely given me a lot to think about um as far as as far as all of this like the intersection between politics and violence and art i i think is something that i'm really like really intrigued by learning more about so thank you so much for your time today and and helping me out with this well
1: this is a lot of fun